Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. And all the people on the job, all the people you spent all those hours in the radio car with, the guys with their feet up on their desk telling stories, who shorted you on the food runs, who signed your overtime slips. In the end, they're not going to be there either. Family, that's it. Family. And if you're lucky, one or two friends who are the same as family. What up, y'all? What's going on? What's happening? This is the Wire at 20 podcast, and I'm your host, Method Man. We're more than halfway through this thing now. Time is flying. Today, we're going to get into the relationship the cast and crew formed while working on the Wire. The word family, I know, it gets gets thrown around a lot in relation to work environments. But on the Wire, let me tell y'all something, man. We really developed a special bond over time. You heard? Part of it came from living, working, and hanging out together, obviously. But what really brought us closer was being involved in something we knew was special, even if the masses weren't paying attention yet. Wondering if the show was going to be renewed? That brought us closer. Learning that we had common interests during our downtime? That brought us closer. Getting into fights during random outings? (laughs) That definitely brought us closer. That might be the perfect metaphor for what it felt like to work on The Wire. It really was us against the world. Look, I could talk about this all day, but I figured you'd really want to hear from everyone else about how this bond was formed, how it evolved, and why it means so much to all of us 20 years later. In the immortal words of Big Daddy Kane, I'll let executive producer Nina Noble set it off. On The Wire, we really were like a family. I think probably a lot of shows say that, but at the end, we realized that we had 95% of the crew that we had started the pilot with. Like, everybody just dropped whatever they were doing. They left other jobs once we had a green light for the next season. Because it was such a long-running series in Baltimore, people got married and bought houses and had kids during the course of the series. And to this day, people will say, oh, yeah, that was my wire baby season two, you know, and that's how that's how we remember like what year it was, is like what season it was when our kids were born. We certainly worked really long hours, especially at the beginning. And so you see the best and worst of people immediately. I guess that sort of makes you like a family in some ways, a dysfunctional family anyway. We all spent time together every weekend. (laughs) Like you figure when you're working, you know, 12, 14 hours a day that you're going to want to break from these people. But we had a softball team and people were going out and playing softball. I think if we had been an immediate hit, it might have been different. We were closer by way of the fact that this was maybe more of a well-kept secret or maybe just like we were kind of the underdogs. Okay, now, now look. 
When we weren't working, we were looking to enjoy ourselves. And no matter what you were into, there were different crews you could hang with between our call times. You could hit the bars and clubs to see what Baltimore's nightlife scene had to offer. Or you could stay in and play video games all night. Or you could bond in a more uh, wholesome way. First off, you're going to hear from some of us who were involved in, as Hassan put it in episode two, the more dastardly activities, the shenanigans. Here are Dominic Lombardozzi, who played Herc, and Dominic West, who played McNulty. When once the show got picked up, we said, you know what, uh, why don't we just get like a two bedroom apartment and see how it goes. And that's what we did. And it became like a somewhat of a fraternity house, one of many. One season we lived in the same complex, different apartments. We were all pretty young and we had an amazing time. We were all, at one point, we were all living in the same building pretty much. So it was a sort of, you know, frat house. <laughs> there was a lot of drinking. <laughs> I mean, what else were we going to do? Get drunk. Yeah, all the time. The door was always open. Whoever wanted to come in, came in. Everybody. You name it, everybody. When me and Seth went to work, it was pretty easy. Playing him in Madden was hard. We were all away from home. <laughs> I was miles from home and single. I think most of us were single. We, we had a good time. <laughs> what can I say? I remember a place called Chubby's. That was quite, that was an interesting one. That was a regular. We had to judge a few competitions there, which I remember Wendell taking quite seriously. It was like my college. It was like my acting school. Me and JD were late 20s. If you really think about it, a lot younger than a lot of those people. I just soaked it all in. I was a sponge. Dominic Lombardozzi spent a whole lot of time with Seth Gilliam, a.k.a. Ellis Carver. But he spent a whole lot of time with another castmate as well, J.D. Williams, who played Bodie. You keep walking away from JSA, we keep kicking your ass. Ooh, I'm all man. right with that if you are. Look, I ain't walk away from nowhere, man. It wasn't long before JD introduced Dom to a hobby of his, anime. I hate fucking anime. Anyway. Dom and Seth and certain people was staying in these nice lofts. And I'm like, hold up. I'm only coming down for like the weekend. Seth ain't hardly here. I'm hanging out with Dom. So I talked my way into Dom's little apartment, right? And so, yeah, I ended up just... Bum crashing at his spot, freaking him out with Japanese cartoons and all types of dumb video games and stuff. JD, we would go play basketball, then he was showing me these, uh, whatever you call these cartoons, these animated Japanese things. I don't even know what the hell they're called, even to this day. I'm like, look, if I'm going to get him to watch one cartoon, it better be a good one. I got him to finally watch it, and he was so surprised that he actually liked it. So that's why he was like... Yeah, I got him to watch an anime because he actually surprised he watched the whole anime. <laughs> and I don't know if he, he's watched one since, but he definitely watched that one. It was all philosophical and everything. So he probably was like, nah, I don't need any more anime. I'm good. <laughs> Most of us actually wasn't from Baltimore. We would like say, okay, well, how are we going to figure this out? Anybody trying the accent? Nah, <laughs> we ain't going to do that. Anybody been... Here yet, there yet, here yet. It was like something where it's like, if you ain't talking to somebody, you just probably being an asshole. It's somebody on here you want to meet, pick their brain, say at least you did a good job on that because everybody did something. 
All right, all right, all right. Check this out, man. I, I, can't, I, I can't hold this back. There, there's this one story that J.D. told us about one particular night, one dastardly night, one night of shenanigans in D.C. that went totally left. You really just have to hear it for yourself, though. I don't know if anybody told you the time that, like, me, Idris, Dom, Hassan, I think it was just the four of us. We got into this big fight. No? That happened once. We went down to Club Dream in D.C. all together. It was a good time. We was chilling. Had the whole good time. It was the end of the night. We was leaving. Some dude bumped Hassan real fast, and then he was already kind of mad at him. He punched him. And me, Idris, Hassan, and Dom just went in against, like, some football team. It was a bunch of, it was a, one of them college football teams. Uh, it didn't turn out. It didn't turn out too bad, actually, because security was really big. Security was huge, right? And I mean, this big giant Samoan dude snatched me up. He slammed me onto the bar and then he pinned me with my waist in between his waist and the bar. He was like 300 pounds. He was just leaning on me real heavy. So now I could just hear the fight going on behind me, right? So now I'm seeing like a little bit of scuffle. Now they done separated the guys and everybody done separated. And I'm like, all right, let me go. And the security's like, no, I'm not letting you go. And I'm like, bro, you so much bigger than me. He's like, no, but it's dudes like you that be acting the craziest. And I was like, look, I'm, I'm gonna just sit on this bar over here, all right? Don't trip. So anyway, we went, we bell house out like probably like within a, a half hour. It was real quick. Because the cops arrested Haas, they ain't arrested the other guy. We went and got him out real quick. They was not happy with us that night. And I'm talking about the lights had just came on type we was leaving. Like it was over. And then it had to happen. We was like, how did that happen? That's why the fight was so good, because we could all see. <laughs> like, <laughs> but yeah, man, we, we stuck together like a family. We all made it back. Still looking good. Nobody was hurt. We was a unit. We done did all that together, man. In addition to the uh, frat house, there was another main location where people lived and socialized. The Academy. The Academy is what Clark Peters, the big OG, who played the wise Lester Freeman, called his crib on North Calvert Street. Now, you didn't go to the Academy to party. Oh, hell no. At least not in the rowdy sense. Hanging there was more of an eclectic experience, with a sip and paint type of vibe. Here's Clark Peters, followed by producer Karen Thorson and Andre Royal. I bought a house in Baltimore. It was the best thing I could have done. It was the best thing I could have done for myself and for a large part of our company because they would come on over and spend time there. And so I think that in one respect, I was living Lester as a mentor to some. While Bob was alive, he had a house. After he died, I didn't continue that lease. Clark came to me and he said, well, why don't you just come and hang with me? And I said, great and I would give him my per diem. And it was the Academy, I think he called it, the Academy. If you wanted to go and, and um, play some video games or something like that, then you know, you go on down to Herc and Carver's crib, you know? <laughs> but if you wanted to have you know, some nice meal, wine conversation, then you come on up to my crib. Bob Peters, my man Reggie Cathy, they were the old cat playing jazz. Rolling up a little something, talking about life from their generation. I, I loved it because I'd come down on the train and get in, let's say 11 o'clock at night, and Clark and Reg would be sitting in front of the fire. Sometimes Reg would be playing his sax, and I'd say, so what's up, Clark? And he'd go, pondering. 
It wasn't a party house. I didn't have a television. All we had was books, wine, a fireplace, and conversations. And it was deep. It was deep. I had a studio. I had a bunch of painters buying all sorts of stuff because we were, we're all creatives. And for myself, rather than spending my downtime going down to the next strip club or or to a bar or something, you know, your creativity's got to come on out. Take a bottle of wine, go on downstairs, and just paint or sketch. I got a nice picture that John started that I still have. He didn't finish it. I got this canvas rolled up that John Doman started painting, right? I got something of Reggie's as well. I think I might even have something of Dom Lombardozzi's, not too sure. I was just thinking of this today. I was thinking, I wish we had pictures of this with Lombardozzi and his girlfriend and Reggie Cathay and his girlfriend, Karen, walking on through. Just, just, it was just beautiful, just beautiful. On screen, Clark was perfect as Lester. Whip-smart, meticulous, and seasoned, Lester was just sharper than everyone else. And Lieutenant Daniels even pointed out how he would give you a certain look to let you know it. Did he do that thing where he uh, stares at you over the top of his reading glasses? You know what that look that says? I'm the father you never had, and I don't want to be disappointed in you ever again. Now, Lester spent a lot of time mentoring another cop, Roland Press Belusky, played by Jim True Frost. Press, well, let's be honest, he was a fuck-up, period. But Lester knew how to get the best out of him. They don't use names. And if someone does use a name, he's reminded not to. All of that is valuable evidence. Of what? Conspiracy. We asked Jim and Clark about that dynamic and how they built a relationship off-screen that bled into their performances. That was just great, great luck and great happenstance that Clark and I played Freeman and Prez because I became really good friends with Clark, and I think our personalities really just really meshed. There was really no reason for Clark to mentor Jim, <laughs> right? because he was a complete human, a beautiful soul, you know? I ended up renting a room in the house that he rented on Calvert Street, and we spent a lot of time together. Sometimes it was like, you know, cooking tofu and vegetables with Clark at the house, you know, or watching the birds in the backyard. His role at my house was sometimes just as a babysitter because when my son were coming over, the two of them would go off and play basketball. <laughs> Jim Trufant's taking my son out to play basketball. <laughs> Prez Belusky playing. <laughs> We're just both, I don't know, cut from the same cloth in some ways. Music lovers, art lovers, somewhat chill hippie types. Other people in the cast may not have seen me that way, but I felt like that's where I connected with Clark. He plays very well at being a man who's not too bright. But uh, Jim Trufrost has got one of the mightiest intellects that you'll come across. And life has thrown that man a lot of challenges. And he's come through with shining colors. He's a fine actor. But more than that, he's a great father. And to a large degree, there are very few men who would give up their career for their wives to go ahead and continue theirs. I think that says, you know, enough said. That is Jim True Frost. 
Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The cast, well, we grew closer through the years. J.D. and Andre told us a little bit about how the different crews meshed, how their friendships extended beyond Baltimore and the Wise production schedule. Me and Idris, when he would DJ, he would DJ up here in New York. He would call me. I would be up here. We'd meet up in the city. I'd bring all my people out. Me and Idris, Idris just had a baby. I just had a baby. We would sit there at the, at the hotel bar and talk about what fatherhood is like, how scary it is. Dom West, we worried about his accent. Don't want to be called out. Sonia was the only girl, only female black chick running around with us. She wanted to make sure that she was treated with respect, but also that she could hang with the boys. Michael B. Jordan was a youngin', and he's from my city, so his mom, great mom, shout out. You got to watch your kids in the industry, especially that young. Only person she would let him hang out with that was an adult was me, you know? And that carried over for years and years and years with my little brother. We had fights. It was like a, like college. It was like a small college. <laughs> so we were just like, get on each other's nerves, be there for each other when a bad scene happened or you felt like you just, you know, you sucked or what have you. We just really, really, really were each other's keeper. The last time Michael Jackson was on TV, me and Idris had a drinking contest, pint of Hennessy each, and I literally ended up like under a table. It was a glass table so I could see him and Andre. And it might have been Larry. Somebody else was laughing at me. <laughs> through the table. I woke up the next morning, my hotel room was trashed. Looked like I I was standing in the middle of a grenade. I had to call everybody the next morning to ask them where all my stuff was and what happened. We all were going through such emotional growing up while we were shooting that we just bonded as a family. We have that moment that nobody could take away from us. It's, it's wired for life, man. The Wire was based in reality, and a lot of people don't make it out of that world alive. Look, it was tough on everybody when characters got killed, not just the audience, the cast as well. But we came up with ways to support each other when someone's time was up. Obviously, we killed off a lot of characters during the show. And when we were going to kill off a character when it was someone's death scene, all the other actors would show up. I know when it was my turn, like, almost everybody showed up. It touched me. It was crazy. It was crazy. And they were sitting at home all day. You know, they waited for the nighttime. They was coming from their hotels. They was coming from their houses. They was coming from wherever they was just to, you know, see Bodie do his last thing. Bodie. Come on, man. And it could be, you know, three, four in the morning. They would have a standing arrangement with the ADs that they would just call everybody. And it would just be a big party and a send-off. Sometimes it surprises you to see, like, people that you're not blood-related to just care about you so much. Oh, isn't that nice? That's so nice that they did that for Bodie. How come y'all ain't do that for Cheese, huh? What about Cheese? What about me, huh? Cheese didn't get no party. I guess the Cheese really does stand alone. Mm. Yeah. The Cheese stands alone. <laughs> it's great to have people around you who care enough to be honest with you, for real. All right, anyway, 
After David Simon brought The Wire back from the dead following season three, he had to convince almost everybody, and I do mean everybody, including Dominic West, to come back for season four. Dom West had a child back in England and had gotten tired of crossing an ocean to play Jimmy McNulty. So they agreed to bring him back, but this time in a smaller role. That's why McNulty's hardly in season four. But at a certain point, some of the cast felt like Dom, well, wasn't giving it his all, like he was dialing it in, and they let him know it. Dominic came in once in a while, season four. His accent kind of lapsed, got worse and worse. We offered him some dialect coaching. He's like, nah, I don't need that, whatever. He started not being prepared, and that was the thing. Those actors all came prepared. It was at the point, this has happened a couple of times, I thought, I need to sit down and talk to him. And before I even had the opportunity to do that, we were filming at a hotel, and all the actors came together. I wasn't there, but Sony was like, don't worry, we're going to take care of this. It's going to happen. They showed up at this hotel, and during a break in filming, they got Dominic in this hotel room, and they had kind of like this intervention with him. And they went in there, and they were like, look, you're letting us down. Like, what's up with this? You don't know your lines. You're phoning this in. Like, no, no, we're not having this. He straightened out after that. That was probably like midway through the season. A little tough love. I remember hearing about it afterwards. That voice of Sonia Sean, like, don't waste this opportunity. This is so important to so many people. It'll be over soon enough. And I think there was a realization for Dominic. He's a great friend. And every time he's doing the job, it's always like, oh, this needs to be over. I wish this was over. It's a part of his nature. He thinks he's not living up to a greater task, not living up to his expectations of himself and his full potential. I didn't recognize it because I probably contributed to his demise because <laughs> we were partying. Dominic and I were partying. And when I heard people like, man, Dominic's not committed. I'm like, Dominic's committed, man. We were just hanging out last night. <laughs> oh, he's fully on. Um, yeah, we were fully on having a good time. <laughs> and so I was, I was part of the problem and not a part of the solution. Then what happened was he, he saw people's work. And he was like, man, I have to step up my game. Everybody's delivering, man. Everybody's delivering. And so self-reflection and the intervention helped bring him back. He's from London. He got a kid. And you got to go all the way to Baltimore. And it ain't like family wants to visit. You can't tell wifey and all of them, hey, come see me in Baltimore. I'll put you in a hotel. No, they're not trying to hear that. You're away from your family. Your team is calling you like, someone's on booked here. Someone's doing this movie. So you start to get a little bit like, am I wasting away in Baltimore when I could be doing other stuff? I mean, I had a breakdown, maybe after season three. But I think we all had moments of, are we still doing this again? Baltimore is a hard city to be around when you're not from there. Okay, now that you've heard the story from everyone else's perspective, here's how Dom West remembers it. I had a very young daughter who I missed very much. And, and I was spending a lot of time flying home and having a sort of jet lag day or two with her and flying back. After three seasons, it was sort of getting to me a bit. Nina Noble, who was our producer, said that I was pissing her off because I was complaining too much about needing to go back home to see my daughter and stuff. And she said that Sonia offered to go and talk to me and give me a pep talk or sort me out and tell me I've got to pull myself together and play for the team a bit better. And what actually happened, they came round, we rented, we had a load of rooms in a hotel and we just parted for three days straight. 
<laughs> we just parted for three days straight. I, I didn't know that was what they were. That's what they were trying to do. And I'm not even sure Nina's uh, remembering it right. In fact, I was pissed off reading it. I, I complain a lot because I don't know how lucky I am and I forget to count my blessings sometimes. But I was not aware that any of my fellow cast members were trying to take me in hand, but that's probably how skillful they were at doing it. They all became godparents to my kids, you know, Sonia and Wendell and Andre. They did that a lot. You wouldn't know that they were being supportive, but they were, and it was very much an ensemble. I think that's probably why, why the show worked so well. I remember Wendell telling me just recently, actually, when I directed a, an episode in season five, I was really nervous, particularly about directing my fellow actors, because I'd been with them for five years, and you never tell another actor how to do a scene. It's just, that's just... That's so alien to me or to any actor to start telling another actor what to do. But I was the director, so I sort of had to. And I was dreading it, particularly Seth, actually, but also Wendell. And to my astonishment, I'd say, look, Seth, would you mind uh, if you, when you come in, would you say the line there just because I've got the camera here? And, and he was a sweet. He'd never been a sweetheart to anyone, but certainly not to me. Never been nice. And he went, yeah, no problem. Yeah, I'll do whatever you want. I, was, I thought, God, this is weird. He's, he's being too nice and obviously planning something. What I didn't realise was they'd had a sort of meeting among themselves and said, look, he's, he's nervous about this. Let's have his back. That was fine until I started getting a bit confident and said to Wendell, I gave him this incredibly pretentious, stupid direction. I said, um, Wendell, I think this scene, I think play the silences because he was doing an interrogation scene. And he looked at me and went... <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> I mean, that's the sort of pretentious, stupid direction that both of us always hated getting from directors. It was a particularly lame direction that he eventually broke and said, fuck you, man. Don't tell me things like that. That sounds like it could have been a scene in The Wire involving McNulty and his fellow cops. Fuck your stripes and fuck McNulty. The cast also hung out between seasons, even venturing outside the country. At some point, I remember me and him went to Amsterdam together. Like, I had never been in Europe, and he was laughing about that. And he was like, let's go to Amsterdam, on me. And I was like, all right. I think he gave up smoking pot after that. He, uh, <laughs> yeah, we, I don't know why the hell we were there. I just remember Andre being astonished that all the cabs were Mercedes-Benz. And he called up Larry, who played D'Angelo, who just bought a Mercedes-Benz and blown all his money, all his salary, blown the whole lot on a Merc, brand new Merc, and he rang him up and he went, hey, Larry, you know your Merc? They got their own cabs out here. They use them as cabs here. <laughs> Apparently, someone needed to be following Dominic and Andre with a camera because they had adventures here in the States as well. We had an, an all-nighter and we were coming out of this club we were coming out at dawn and we were going up these steps into the street of Manhattan and we hadn't noticed it the night before, this huge end side of a building with a, it was a Gap, an advert for Gap, which Andre's daughter was modelling for as a kid. And we came out of this thing, I think he was probably feeling a bit paranoid at this point, and <laughs> came up to this massive picture of his daughter looking at him like this. <laughs> I think he had a dark morning of the soul that time when his daughter was there to greet him as he crawled out of a club at dawn. <laughs> <laughs> man, man, those dudes are nuts. Missed them like crazy, though. My guys. That's why we have this unique bond. We were in the trenches together. And you know what? When you watch the work, that bond, it definitely shows. And people will be talking about it long after we're all gone. 
Oh, and uh, apparently, J.D. Williams had a little message for me. But I'll let y'all hear it before I even respond to the shit. Method Man owe me $60 for a jar of weed. <laughs> Still to this day, fam. To this day. <laughs> nah, it's cool. You know it's meth. That's why I ain't say nothing. I was like, oh, you know, you already stunned. Like, I'm smoking weed with Method Man. And then he like, oh, I'm out. You got any? I'm like, yeah, I got this big ass jar right here. My man sell it for 60 bucks. Here, I'll give it to you tomorrow. I ain't know no better. I ain't know no better. It's all right, though. Like I said, that's Method Man. I can always say, hey, I gave Meth some weed. JD, you a lying motherfucker. Nah, 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 nah. I'm just playing. I probably don't fucking remember. That's what it is. If I, if I don't remember, that's a testament to the grade of marijuana you gave me that day, bro. Next week on The Wire at 20. Michael was one of those sparks, you know, extinguished way, way, way too early. There's certain people, actors on screen, that when they cry, you cry. And it, it, I don't know if it's anything you can teach or if it's just innately in you. But when they angry, you angry. When they cry, you cry. If you were at a party and you were not dancing, Michael would start dancing and everyone would start dancing. It was like electric. It was like bing, 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 bing. Always looked at the bright side. And it, look, at the end of the day, I know everybody got their demons. You know, but, but, you know, sometimes you don't oversee that. Now, if you like what you heard, you know what to do. Subscribe. And don't forget that all seasons of The Wire are on HBO Max. So go watch them, man. The Wire at 20 podcast is a production of HBO and Campside Media. This episode was produced by Cliff Method Man Smith, Shauna Gar, and Natalia Winkleman. Julian Kimball is our story editor. Our associate producer is Lily Houston-Smith. Fact-checking by Aaliyah Papes. At Campside Media, our executive producer is Josh Dean. Editing and sound design by Rod Sherwood and David Devereaux. Music by the Neville Brothers. Thanks for listening. See you next time.